Hello and welcome again to the weekly Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and with me is Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research at the broking firm of Winterflood Securities. First of all, as normal, Simon, let's kick off by talking about what's been happening in the week. We mentioned last week we're heading towards the holiday season when things quieten down a bit, but as you mentioned last week, there will be results and things coming out. But what's been happening in the sector overall this week? Yes, well, it's been, I think it's been a, a more difficult week for markets in, in general. So we'll see the FTSE all share probably down around about 2% so far for this week. And similarly, uh, investment companies will be down as well, though actually uh, not to the same extent as we've seen for the FTSE all share. I mean, clearly, as well reported in the media, there are escalating tensions between the US and China, and that's certainly unnerved markets, as has uh, some of the economic data coming out of the US as well. Clearly, the spike. Uh, that they are unfortunately suffering in terms of coronavirus is again making the market uh, quite skittish. So uh, a tricky backdrop for investors this week. Well, you mentioned China and the ongoing tensions there. As it so happens, this week there has been a development uh, very much about China in the investment trust sector. Perhaps you can tell us uh, what that is and uh, what it potentially signifies. So there's an investment trust called Witten Pacific, which has been for a number of years now a multi-manager. It's taken a multi-manager approach to investing in Asia, including Japan, which is quite a rare mandate. In fact, it's the only only one investment trust now that pursues that course. Um, It's been struggling for some time. Its performance has been an issue. uh, And the board had announced that if it continued to underperform in a period to uh, the early part of next year, then they would give shareholders the chance to exit at around NAV. And that was uh, very much on the cards. But actually, this week, the board came out and said that they'd uh, decided to appoint Bailey Gifford as its investment manager, uh, with a view to adopt a China growth strategy. So this followed uh, a review of the investment management arrangements, and they considered a number of different candidates and a different number of possibilities. But they came to the conclusion that Bailey Gifford and in particular this Chinese mandate was the way forward. Um, So they're still going to offer um, a liquidity event. It's going to be a 40% tender. um, And this is all subject to shareholder approval. So we'll see a vote in September before this all goes through. But essentially, it means that Bailey Gifford yet again pick up yet another investment trust mandate. I think this this equates to something like the, the, the fifth mandate they've ever won or they've launched a few as well, actually, but since the start of 2018. They're definitely the, uh, the firm in form, if you like, at the moment, as you say, and they picked up a lot of mandates. I've got a couple of questions about this uh, development. It's quite an interesting one, not just the timing of it. But first of all, can you just clarify, what is the relationship between Witan Pacific and Witan itself, the investment trust of that name? Is there a connection between the two? There is a connection. So Witan Investment Trust has a subsidiary business called Witan Investment Services, and they've effectively been responsible for selecting the underlying managers. So Witan Pacific is, a, is run on a segregated account basis with four underlying managers, and the Witten team are responsible for appointing and, and monitoring those investment managers, in addition to which they have uh, acted as the shop window. So they provide uh, the report and accounts, the fact sheets, uh, and all the interaction for investors and indeed for the board. But it was quite clear from announcements that they recognised that things had to move on, uh, and they were very supportive of the board's decision in the appointment of Bailey Gifford. So if it's going to become a Bailey Gifford investment trust, depending on how many shareholders obviously go for the tender alternative, which means they will get some cash back. What will be the strategy? Will it be similar to the the strategy that Bailey Gifford's been offering with all its other mandates he's been picking up? 
In other words, in particular, does it include investment in unlisted companies as well as in listed companies, which has been one of the differentiators of their performance, uh, as we've seen in Scottish Mortgage and uh, some of the, the Europe and UK and US trusts that they have taken on the mandate for? So the proposal is that up to 20% of assets can be invested on unquoted holdings. As you rightly say, Bailey Gifford have worked very, very hard now over a number of years at developing the relationships that you need to have in order to make these unquoted holdings. It often comes down to how well do you know the, the management teams or the directors behind these companies. And uh, a good example of that is Alibaba, Bailey Gifford, and in particular, Scottish Mortgage Trust backed pre its IPO going back a number of years. And it's through the relationship with Alibaba that, again, Bailey Gifford and in particular, Monks and Scottish Mortgage have been able to access Ant uh, International, Ant Financial, uh, which looks like it's uh, about to come to the marketplace. So this, these are the kind of deals that I think the intention is that the, the, the Bailey Gifford China Grow Fund, as it uh, will be renamed with shareholders' permission, these are the kind of deals that they will look to access. But it will be up to um, a maximum of 20% of, of the portfolio at the time of investment. Of course, the attraction of investing in these unlisted companies that some people used to call unicorns, which are large private companies which are coming to the market in due course, the advantages that you get in there at an earlier stage of development. Of course, the downside is if they never actually get to the market at all. So there is then an issue about liquidity and so on. How have Bailey Gifford been dealing with that? Uh, I mean, how many of these unicorns or whatever you like to call them, how many of them have actually come to the market apart from the couple that you mentioned? They've had a good track record in that respect. And actually, the latest annual report for Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust kind of runs through the track record of, of backing these companies pre-IPO and holding them. And I think that's a very important part of the strategy. They're not trying to invest just in a later round uh, funding round and look to flip these things at IPO. Uh, the Bailey Gifford approach is very much about identifying companies that they want to hold over the long term. And they're not necessarily in a hurry to see them come to the market as and when that's the right time. I think that that's all good. And in fact, in a number of instances, not only have they continued to hold these companies, but actually they've added to their position as well. Uh, and equally, there's some unquoted holdings. And again, the Scottish mortgage portfolio is the best example of this that they've invested in that, that simply haven't yet come to the marketplace, but uh, you know, sitting there in the portfolio, but performing very well in their own right. And one of the things that the investment team at Bellico talk about is this idea of companies remaining private for longer. They don't need to come to the marketplace in order to raise capital because they invariably are capital-like companies. They're not kind of big industrialists that need to spend money to develop machinery and plants and all the rest of it. And often the liquidity event that an IPO offers is triggered by the desire of the founders to take some money off the table. But as far as Bailey Gifford as a house concerned, they are quite relaxed about that timescale. I mean, there will be some issues around having a specialist China Investment Trust. We know there are two others uh, in the investment trust sector, one of which was started with Anthony Bolton, the well-known UK stock picker at the helm, and another one run by JP Morgan, I believe. But there are some issues around investing in China. I mean, the, the argument for it, I guess, is that the Chinese economy obviously is becoming a much larger part of the global economy. But there are also issues about how far the companies like Alibaba and Ant and so on will be allowed to operate in a you know freely capitalist way, I suppose one could put it. What have they said about that? Or is that an issue that they haven't yet addressed in what they've been saying about the plan to go into China? What's behind it, really? You make an excellent point, and clearly it's very much on the agenda this week. And as I said earlier, it's something that's definitely caught the market's attention. I mean, to be fair to the Bailey Gifford investment team, it's still very early days. And this is all subject to 
shareholder approval. So um, as of yet, this is not a Bailey Gifford fund. But I think it's it's not just an issue for that particular firm, but it's an issue for any number of investors and not just the, the pure play China funds. You mentioned the, the Fidelity one and the JP Morgan one. Increasingly, China is, is a key part of any number of portfolios, obviously with those with global mandates, the weighting to China has invariably increased hugely uh, over recent years. And in addition to that, when you talk to even investment managers that are focused on European equities or UK equities or whatever it might be, the, the China story is still very much part of the investment thesis in many cases, that because China has been such a big driver of economic growth over the last two decades, that it's very difficult to find companies or investment strategies that are untouched by China, if that makes sense. There's two sides to it, isn't there? There's obviously the companies that uh, make things in China, and there's the companies that sell things in China, and companies that sell things to China and its emerging middle class as well. Uh, and the China mandate, I guess, could cover probably all these kinds of opportunity. But in terms of the world market, I mean, people may not realize quite what a big proportion of the emerging markets uh, index that China has become. What, what, what are the figures around that? Yes, of the emerging markets index, China, broadly speaking, are probably about 40 percent or so now and obviously of Asia, it'll be that much higher. Um, so it is a huge, huge component now of emerging markets and, and, and Asian funds. Um, less so for global funds, actually, the weighting to China is still much, much smaller than that. We're talking single digits, but one suspects that will that will change in time. I mean, that is bound to continue to grow unless there's some, as you say, some complete breakdown in globalization and uh, conflict between the US and China in particular, which has obviously been gnawing away at some people this week. Well, that'll be very interesting to see how that one fares. Would you expect there to be a lot of demand for that uh, under its new owners? What we can say is that when the announcement was made, the share price did go up on the back of it um, and uh, we saw the discount tighten. So, um, I mean, the fact that there is a tender offer in place that uh, shareholders can get out of 1% to NAV means that anyone who, for whatever reason, didn't want to be exposed to this mandate, didn't suit what they were looking for, they'll be given a good chance to exit. Uh, and so thereafter, you'd expect the trade to be quite tight in, in the shares. But we will find out in the next few months. Well, can you just finally put a, some numbers around that? I mean, just suppose forty uh, percent of the shareholders do go for the tender offer. Uh, how big would the investment trust then be, and how would that compare to the other two runners in the field, the other two current runners in the field, the Fidelity one and the J.P. Morgan one? So at the moment, Witten Pacific has assets of about two hundred and thirty million. So as I said, it's up to forty percent tender offer. So if that was fully taken up, the number of assets would drop to around about 140 or so. So a substantial decrease. Uh, that would put it on the small side initially compared with the JP Morgan Fund, which has a market cap of about 360 million and a, quite a long way behind the Fidelity Fund, which has a market cap of about 1.5, 1.6 billion. So that's the largest of the three. But it's worth noting that um, of the Bailey Gifford stable, there are 11 uh, investment trust companies at the moment and seven are trading on premiums and they've been very good at growing their their mandates by issuing new shares on those premium ratings that's one we're going to be following closely over the next uh, few weeks and months obviously china is a very interesting issue for all sorts of reasons let's just move on to another investment trust that has switched from its traditional mandate to a another multi-manager approach that is the well-known alliance trust been in business for many, many years, dates back to the 19th century, rather lost its way a few years ago, but has reorganized and changed the way it does its business. What have they been saying this week and how have they been doing? 
So they had the interim results out for the six months to the end of uh, June. You know, a difficult period, I think, as it, as it has been for many investors, clearly. NAV total return of um, negative, they fell 3.5%. Uh, and that compares with um, their kind of global equities index, which was up half a percent. So they've lagged a little bit during that six month period. So this, as you correctly say, uh, is a multi-manager approach. And funnily enough, the value orientated stock pickers were the ones that struggled in the period. So names on the roster such as River and Mercantile, Jupiter and Lyrical. And, and again, unsurprisingly, those that had a more growth orientated approach tended to do a bit better. And actually what, what happened during that six month period is that they reallocated away from some of the value guys and gave some of the growth uh, investors a little bit more money to play with. But um, for shareholders, it wasn't all kind of gloom. Um, they, they've made it clear that their intention is to use revenue reserves to deliver uh, a 54th year of dividend increases. Um, so for many investors, that's clearly good news. Yes, it's interesting that a lot of uh, trusts are moving away from value for growth. Some people might think that was a contrary indicator that maybe value is about to make a return. But now in Alliance Trust case, obviously, they're just shifting a little bit in that direction. Do you have any sort of thoughts about multi-manager in general as, a, as an approach? Is it one that's suitable for investment trusts? And uh, obviously, Witten was a well-known investment trust that changed to multi-manager has done pretty well uh, until quite recently. And Alliance has done better than it was doing before anyway, since it switched. How popular is the multi-manager approach? And do you think it's got a, is it going to become something for the future? We're going to see more of that or what? I think it's an investment approach that means that uh, at any one moment in time, you're very unlikely to be in the top 10% of performers. And equally, you should never really be in the bottom 10%. There should be a smoother return performance. At the moment, it's a little bit difficult because, as we know, the growth has done so much better than value investment. So there's a big skew at the moment. But over time, and I think you have to take a long-term view of it, the, the theory is that by taking a blended approach and trying to identify very good, capable underlying managers, that you will um, incrementally add to outperformance over any given period of time. I mean, since Alliance Trust adopted this approach, uh, and I'm going to say off the top of my head, it was about three or four years ago, I think they're slightly behind the index, but not markedly so. And I think it is it is a case that you're going to have to give them you know, a decent run at this to, to demonstrate that they can add to outperformance. There's also the issue that people raise uh, with fund of funds. I mean, there's the issue of fees on fees, if you like. I guess you've got to uh, believe that the selection, the ability of the managers to select the right management groups to manage the pots of money they've been allocated can do that effectively, taking account both of the fees they charge and the fees that the underlying funds charge. Would that be a fair comment? I mean, people are very, very focused on fees now. And by definition, multi-managers are going to be a little bit more expensive, though not necessarily as expensive as perhaps people might might think. And, and the ongoing charges of both Alliance Trust and Witten are competitive. But then that's a function of the fact that actually they're both quite decent sized funds as well. So you get some kind of economies of scale. I mean, it really, it does come down to, you know, we, we often talk about stock selection, how important that is. But in, the, in these particular instances, is about manager selection. You know, how successful are Willis Towns Watson for Alliance Trust in selecting the best performing managers and equally with Witten Investment Trust, James Hart and Andrew Bell, two very experienced investors, uh, and they have a number of people supporting them as well. You know, how successful they are in identifying the most appropriate managers to go with. But it is a long-term investment story. And as I said, the design is very much to kind of smooth returns over a period. And just for the record, what are we looking at in terms of ratings for Alliance and Witten, the, the main Witten group, not Witten Pacific, you mentioned that one, but for Witten itself, how have they been trading? What's the discount story there? 
So the discount widened out this year. They, the Witten have um, had a tough period of performance and they've actually been quite active in terms of buybacks. Uh, property trading out about an 8 9% discount at the moment. Uh, Alliance Trust a little bit tighter than that. They're probably around about uh, 6% discount or so. Let's move on from there and let's talk about briefly a management change. Some, a lot of people will be familiar with the Invesco or Invesco Perpetual as was bond funds. They've been very active in that area for a long time. Uh, and there's some two very well-known managers there. But there's been a management change at a couple of investment trusts where they are the named managers. Can you tell us just what the story is there? So the two investment trusts are City Merchants High Yield and Invesco Enhanced Income. And you're absolutely correct. The two Pauls, Paul Reed and Paul Colzer, they've been involved in those investment trusts for a, a long period of time. But actually a number of years ago, Reese Davis was brought uh, alongside the two Pauls as the, as the third manager. And actually this week, they've announced that he's going to take responsibility for for day-to-day management with uh, a gentleman called Edward Craven as his deputy portfolio manager. So the two poles are still involved. They're the co-heads of the fixed interest team for Invesco, but they'll just step back as as the co-manager. So this is something that's been quite well signposted for a number of years. So that was just a kind of formalization of that. So this is the kind of succession planning perhaps that goes on in the more thoughtful uh, investment management companies. While we're on that, though, you might just quickly remind us of the difference between those two. So one of them is is a high yield, City Motors high yield, and the other is an enhanced income fund trust. So what is the difference between the strategies there? Can you just explain those terminology again for those who have maybe forgotten from last week or the week before? <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're obviously the same management team, same investment team. So they have a lot of the similar holdings and uh, investment approach. The key difference really is that Invesco Enhanced Income has historically had a higher level of gearing, and that's reflected in a higher level of yield. So at the moment, on a historic basis, Invesco Enhanced Income has a yield of 7.7%, whereas City Merchants High Yield uh, is sitting about 5.6% on a historic basis. So more gearing with Invesco Enhanced Income, but a high yield to go with it. Right. So that further increases the risk, as as we know. If you put more gearing in, it increases the yield, but it actually also potentially increases the risk if things don't work out as you hope or expect. Even so, I mean, more than 7% yield is, uh, you would expect that to get some attention. How do those two trade? They have actually been derated a little bit this year. And again, a difficult year for the credit market. Um, But Invesco Enhanced Income is on about a 9% discount at the moment. City merchants, uh, much narrower, about a 3% discount. It has traded around NEV on average over the last 12 months. So that's a little bit of a derating for that one. We'll move on to a couple of results we've had out this week. One that's quite well followed by retail investors is BlackRock Frogmorton. What have they been up to? What have they been doing this year? They're a small cap specialist, I believe, or small and mid cap. How have they been doing? Yep. So they had their interim results out to the end of May. And again, obviously, clearly a tricky period of performance, um, but they outperformed on a relative basis. So their NEV total return was down 12%, but that compared with uh, nearly 15%, a decline of 15% for the benchmark. So the advantage that BlackRock for Morton Trust had in this particular period of difficult market conditions is that they have a short book. So they have a limited capacity to actually short some names. That means uh, as opposed to holding some names have been long of names you can short them so you sell them without without owning them so this is relatively rare for uh, this type of uh, investment trust 
but the team there, so Dan Whitestone has been managing this farm for a number of years, very experienced in this area, and that helped them uh, claw back some performance in this period. Unsurprisingly, the names that hurt uh, performance were in the kind of consumer services sector, uh, and that's obviously what's been quite badly hit this year. But, uh, you know, the manager's been quite busy trading around and taking advantage of opportunities as he sees it and actually gearing at the moment. Or certainly the net market exposure is about uh, 116% at the moment. So they've got a geared exposure. So I think the manager thinks there's there's quite a bit of value on offer. So obviously, by talking about shorting stocks, effectively, you're you're placing a bet that the price of the shares are going to go down rather than go up, which is why you would normally buy them. But it's a very competitive sector, the small company sector, one of the best performing, I guess, in the or historically in the investment trust sector and one of the uh, the largest and uh, popular sectors. How does uh, Throgmorton's trading compare, first of all, in terms of performance and secondly, in terms of discount with some of the other well-known names in this particular sector? So over the last five years, so a decent period of time, the NAV is up 67% uh, in NAV total return terms. And that certainly places it towards the top of the, of the peer group. One or two have done a little bit better than that. So Harry Nimmo, Standard Life UK, smaller companies is a, just a little bit ahead uh, on 69%. And there are one or two uh, that will not be too far behind, but certainly one of the stronger performers. And that's reflected in the rating as well. So it's trading on a 1% discount at the moment. In fact, it has been on a premium uh, relatively recently and it has issued some shares as well. So a very highly rated investment trust investing in UK smaller companies. One we haven't actually mentioned in the same sector, which I think you've been looking at anyway, is uh, JP Morgan uh, Smaller Companies Trust, which people don't often talk about in the same breath, I think, as uh, some of the others in that sector, well-known ones in the sector. I thought they had some interesting comments to make about IPOs and things like that. What have they been saying this week? So we had an update. Uh, the, the, the two managers there, Georgina Brisson, a uh, very, very experienced manager, and Katan Patel. And yeah, an interesting story, actually. And it's one that we're starting to hear from other people who are looking at UK equities, but particularly in that bit of small cap space, that there are some encouraging signs coming through in some of the, the results and some of the data. And that's something that the JP Morgan Smaller Companies Management Team picked up on. Um, I think clearly you've got to be discerning. But I think one thing that everybody seems to be agreed on is that the valuations at that end of the marketplace are attractive, i.e. they are lower than they have been historically. And there is a good story as well in terms of dividends perhaps being reinstated. So we have seen a lot of dividend cuts and suspension across the whole UK market space, but uh, a number now is starting to to creep back. And there is an expectation, uh, I think, that as we go through this year, that a number will be uh, prepared to reintroduce their, their dividends, go back on the list uh, as people describe it. However, and this is certainly the point that came out of that conversation with the uh, JP Morgan team, is that there is clearly risk that if the conditions were to change, in other words, there is a second spike, we have another wave of coronavirus, and that has a significant economic impact, then this is clearly the end of the marketplace that will be particularly hit. I mean, I should have made clear that this is the UK smaller company sector we're talking about here. It's not global smaller companies, which we've talked about in the past. So as you say, they're susceptible to all the issues that are around the UK, including, of course, the Brexit issue, which is, again, beginning to bubble underneath the surface of all the viral headlines in the media. Talking about dividends, as we were, it's an ongoing story, obviously, about income this year. We've talked about that many, many times in both the equity income sector and in some of these specialist alternative asset classes, uh, including property and, and other types of uh, income generating strategies. So what's what's the story you've been hearing from the people you've been hearing from this week? 
as far as uh, income payments and the income sustainability is concerned? Well, I suspect the name that caught most people's attention this week was City of London Investment Trust, who really are the kind of the poster child for the investment trust sector. They are the AIC, the Association of Investment Companies that promote investment trusts. They labelled a whole bunch of investment trusts as dividend heroes, being those that have uh, generated 20 or more consecutive years of, of dividend growth. And actually, City of London is at the front of that list. And they announced uh, this week that they're looking to increase their dividend for the 54th consecutive year. And in fact, their uh, intention is to generate the 55th as well. So looking for an increased dividend in 2021 as well. But that said, clearly they're not immune to dividend cuts and suspension across the UK marketplace. And this is a fund that uh, is essentially invested in the UK or largely invested in the UK. And so they will, that dividend will be funded by a combination of income and revenue reserves. And that's one of the benefits that that particular investment trust has indeed a number have, that they've built up revenue reserves over a number of years and the intention is to, to use them. But aside from City of London, and to be honest, you would expect City of London to, to keep its dividend growth record going by all means possible. But it's actually away from that that we've seen a number uh, of the more kind of specialist funds come back and, and particularly those that have suspended their dividends early in the year or announced dividend cuts have now been prepared to kind of creep back onto this. So um, specialist names such as Fair Oaks Income, for instance, after early suspending their dividend, given the backdrop, there's a lot of uncertainty in their, in their space. They're now introducing a, a quarterly dividend of one and a half uh, cents. Equally, Marble Point Loan Financing, another specialist fund, uh, they've reinstated their quarterly dividend payments, albeit two cents per share. So these are all kind of gentle levels, probably more interesting or kind of more mainstream. And I think this is something that we talked about last week on the property side. There was a feeling that actually, given that the, the, the pattern of rent collection was better than perhaps people thought that there might be some upside in some of the commercial property funds. And actually, that's come to pass for Schroeder Real Estate Investment Trust. Um, and again, having suspended its dividend uh, back in the first quarter of this year, given everything that was going on at that time, they've actually re- reinstated their interim dividend uh, for Q2, so the second quarter of this year, albeit at a 50% level of their, their previous dividend payment. So again, positive developments in, on the commercial property side. Very good. Well, let's uh, finally acknowledge the fact that there's also been some issuance going on. Of course, there's always some issuance going on, secondary issuance and so on. But probably worth noting the placing by Hickel, H-I-C-L. Could we read anything into the results of that placing? You might remind us what Hickel does and uh, what the issue was and how much money they raised and so on. So not only is it an infrastructure fund, it was probably about the first infrastructure fund, actually, and certainly one uh, of the largest ones now with a market cap of uh, 3.1 billion, uh, offering a yield of just short of 5% on a historic basis. But they uh, came to the marketplace and they were looking to raise 75 uh, million pounds. And actually, they were significantly oversubscribed. So they had uh, far more demand for their shares than they could offer. But they did increase that issuance up to 120 million pounds, but had to scale investors back. So that would suggest that demand for uh, infrastructure funds in general uh, remains strong, despite the fact that there is some economic sensitivity there. Uh, but one suspects that the yield is uh, remains very, very attractive. A number of these infrastructure funds are, are offering yields of around about 5%, although there is a range. And I think that's probably what captures investors' interest. 
And finally, on the going back to the growth sector, leaving aside income for the moment and going back to the sectors where you're looking for capital growth rather than income generation, uh, we haven't talked about a investment trust called BB Healthcare, which I think produces half-year results. And of course, I would expect they've been doing quite well. They're in the right sector at the right time, and they're probably trading quite well as well. What's been the story there? Yeah, absolutely right. So they had interim results out to the end of May, and uh, their NAV total return was actually up, as you'd expect, given healthcare has clearly been a good area of the marketplace this year. Their NAV total return for that six-month period was up 13%, uh, and that compared with the MSCI, so uh, World Healthcare Index, which was up 12%, so they outperformed. And it's interesting, actually, because the commentary from the managers that they they repositioned the portfolio as the, as the pandemic unfolded in, in January. They raised liquidity, so they, they sold down some of their holdings. They were happy to raise cash, which proved to be um, a good thing to do because even the healthcare sector was not uh, immune to the sell-off in mid-March. And they actually saw some attractive value at that stage, and they redeployed their capital. Uh, they now said that actually valuations are looking pretty high again, and they've raised a bit of cash. They've got about 5% in cash at the moment. But uh, no, a, a positive set of results. And they've set a, a target for their full financial year 2020 of 5p per share in terms of their dividend as well. Thank you, Simon. Well, finally, I, I can't fail to record the fact that uh, we have seen, uh, we don't spend much time talking about the specialist debt sector because that's a very uh, specialist one, which uh, not a lot of retail investors involved in that, and quite rightly so. But there have been a couple of M&A developments in that sector this week. Uh, including a, a bid by M&G, the well-known unit trust company anyway, for uh, UK mortgages. But I'd like to finish by talking about the sector more generally and whether you actually think there will be more consolidation in the, in the sector over the coming months. I mean, what sometimes happens when you have a period of disruption, if you like, rather like the virus has done, we do tend to see some of the smarter operators in the market will see uh, opportunities to get involved in other trusts either by taking over the management. But it's quite rare to see M&A activity I welcome your general thoughts on that issue, Simon, and, and perhaps just bring us up to date also on the saga that's been going on at Gabelli Value Plus Plus Trust uh, this week, which has been a bit of a ding-dong battle. Quite fun to watch. Glad I'm not involved in it, but quite fun to watch. Over the last 10 years, we saw an awful lot of debt funds launched, uh, specialist debt funds. Some have proven successful, some of them haven't. But um, I think at this stage of the cycle, to see corporate activity and people adopt different strategies can be expected and it would be fair to say you probably see uh, more corporate activity in general going forward though to be fair you know the investment trust sector is never short of corporate activity broadly speaking there's there's always something going on and, and uh, as you rightly observe gabelli value plus plus is certainly an interesting story at the moment so this is the one where a number of the leading shareholders have uh, suggested that the the, the investment company enter into a managed wind down, so effectively wind up, and the board have concurred with them. So the board, with one exception, have said, yeah, well, we think that's the right way to go. But actually, the largest shareholder, an outfit called Associated Capital Group, who own 27% of the share capital, uh, and probably more importantly, are an affiliate of the investment manager, um, have actually announced or announced this week that they would vote in favour of the um, fund continuing. So in vote in favour of continuation uh, at the AGM at the end of this month, so next week, 30th of July. Um, they are looking to promote um, a distribution policy and a reset of the fees, but I think it's fair to say that a number of the shareholders, so Investec Wealth uh, and Investments have been one that's come out and publicly written in a, a letter, 
uh, as have um, CG Asset Management. One suspects that both those shareholders and presumably a number of others will be disappointed by this development. But it's quite interesting. You actually see these kind of public uh, disputes, if you like, call them a dispute maybe, or differences of opinion uh, being played out in the public arena and uh, in a listed sector. That's a good sign, I think. It's good that all the arguments are put on the table and people make their case and the shareholders ultimately can decide. I would observe, it's probably not a total surprise, that the affiliate of the manager should vote for continuation and others are voting against it. Uh, but we'll have to see who has the votes at the end of the day, as they say. That'll be fun to watch. I'm glad I'm not particularly involved in that one, but uh, it'll be part of the unfolding story as we go forward into the August holiday period. Simon, that's all we've got time for this week, but I look forward to uh, speaking to you again next week. There will be some results, as you say, coming out in August, but we might take the opportunity to talk in more general terms about one or two of the aspects of investment trust that people perhaps are not as clear about as they might be. It can be quite confusing. So we might talk about the difference between C-shares, placings, and so on in a bit more detail, and the difference between tenders and redemption facilities and all those kinds of things, just to help explain to people how these things work in the investment trust sector. If we don't have enough else to talk about, which every week we seem to have more than enough to keep us occupied. So thank you, Simon, very much. And I look forward to speaking again next week. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening, and please keep safe in these difficult times.